I was thinking to myself, if you wanted to be the most powerful country in the world, how would you do it? How would you do it? And let's say you didn't want to have a war in order to achieve your goals. How would you do it? And it seems pretty obvious, actually, when you frame it that way, that you'd want to control the world's natural resources. Because if you did, you could dictate the terms of basically every other country's economy. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it. Feel free to leave a comment on YouTube, the website, or otherwise. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I mean, we see a continued constricting of supply here. Oil has come down, granted, but interestingly, these stories just keep coming. There's another one here on copper, and I found another one on rare earths, where China is just beginning to constrain. It's starting to just assert more control over natural resources. And copper is another big one. This was in a story in Bloomberg News via mining.com. China tightens grip on copper, key to world's energy transition. And you might think to yourself, well, isn't copper out of Latin America, you know, maybe Democratic Republic of Congo? Does China have any copper? How could they constrict supply? And it's one of these things that doesn't seem to be discussed very often. And this is the notion of where are these metals refined and processed? And what you'll find is China refines a remarkable amount of copper. I think I see 45%. China will account for about 45% of global refined copper output this year, according to CRU. I mean, just think about that. And then you put all of the natural resources in Russia. I mean, look at Russia on a map. And then you look at Africa. Most of Africa is leaning towards the China-Russia axis, no matter how many visits you know, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and Anthony Blinken make, or Victoria Nuland, it doesn't seem like they're very effective at shoring over deals. I mean, Joe Biden is going to Indonesia now in an attempt to, I guess, forge some links for nickel, which Robert Friedland says there is not enough of. To quote, it doesn't exist, the amount of metal that we need for all the batteries that are planned. Graphite. Okay, so... We're like, okay, we're ramping up rare earths metals. We're ramping up graphite. Do you remember, for those longtime listeners, remember the interview we did with Graphics Technologies CEO John DeMaio, who's actually going to be on next week? Remember how he said, you know, we can make all the graphite we want here, but we have to process it still in China. And I wonder, you know, maybe the U.S. becomes the second biggest rare earths producer in the world. That might sound good in a news story, and politicians might pat themselves on the back, but I'm kind of back to my question, where are those rare earths being processed? Because that is the art. You know, rare earths, as everybody says, are not that rare. They're actually all over the place, and it's a bit of a messy business to extract them, but it's doable. The real art, from my understanding, is the refinement. And last I heard, the... Rare earth refining in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan was closing down due to bankruptcy. Again, I'm just a guy reading the stories here and reporting them to you and giving my commentary along the way. But, I mean, do you have an answer to this? Like how this is going to work? And so I'm going to re-ask John DeMaio next week as I continue to show skepticism here on how this green transition is going to work. And, you know, I have a wonderful guest on here today, Simon Michaud, associate professor at the Geological Survey of Finland, a well-known figure for the first time on the Northern Miner podcast. I'm very pleased to have him. The long story short on this interview, which is super interesting, is one, we have to move off of fossil fuels, interestingly. Two, the energy transition is not going to work as currently thought of. It's not feasible. You know, as Simon Michaud says, for the billion cars that we're going to make in the next 10 years, which sounds like utter insanity, frankly, from over here, that sounds like total insanity. You know, we're going to save the world by making a billion metal machines for us to drive in. 
Is that really going to solve the world's problems? So first, we have to get off of fossil fuels, which is an interesting distinction, by the way, from what a lot of you know skeptics on the green transition say. Most of them are saying we have to stay on oil for the next 50 to 100 years, and that's just how it is. Interestingly, Simon Michaud says, no, we actually have to get off of fossil fuels. However, the green transition isn't going to work as currently modeled and then offers solutions, interestingly, geothermal and thorium. And we don't talk about thorium very often, do we? And frankly, geothermal, what happened to that? So I asked Simon Michaud where we are on these technologies because... You know, it's the sort of technology you heard about 10 years ago, and you never really heard about it again. So a very interesting interview with Simon Michaud, who is very well-versed in this subject matter and just adding to our education, really, another refined view on what is happening. But we've had a few refined views. I mean, again, Robert Friedland, a skeptic. Simon Michaud here, a skeptic. As I ask almost everybody I'm interviewed, that has a kind of view on the topic, does this really make sense to dig up all of the world's metals in the world's crust in order to save the world, in order to be environmental, so that we can build, as Simon Michaud says, a billion cars in the next 10 years? You know, so it continues here. So I'm trying to add color here by bringing on Simon Michaud. We're going to have John DeMaio next week on graphite if everything goes as planned. So it should be a fascinating journey here as we continue to investigate the reality of this situation, which is really at the center of the global political narrative. I mean, why is Joe Biden going to Indonesia? Okay, you have the most powerful person in the world is going to Indonesia. Why? For these metals. And wait till you hear about what's going on in the diamond market, what's going on with gold stocks, what's going on with rare earths, and more. So tons to look at here as we continue here. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to Nikkei Asia to get this rare earth story, China tightens rare earth export curbs amid tension with U.S. Traders required to provide information on types and shipment destinations. So it seems pretty benign as far as actual restrictions, but it is what you might consider a first step. I just have three or four paragraphs here I want to read. China will tighten export controls on rare earths requiring exporters to report rare earth types and their export destinations, Beijing announced Tuesday, against a backdrop, and this was a week ago, against a backdrop of domestic calls for a response to stricter limits on U.S. semiconductor exports to China. The new restrictions are set to run through the end of October in 2025. Observers say China's move to tighten its grip over the strategic materials may be a negotiating tactic ahead of a planned November summit between Chinese President Xi Jinping and his U.S. counterpart Joe Biden. China's Commerce Department announced that it had added rare earths, including compounds and alloys, to its list of mineral resources and other items requiring disclosure of information such as material type and export destinations. China accounts for 70% of the world's output of rare earths, which are essential for the manufacture of electric vehicles and some weapons, including missiles. The U.S., which has developed its own mines, for some critical minerals, has risen to become the world's second largest producer. But it lacks sufficient smelting capacity, forcing it to export raw materials to China for processing before re-importing them. And that is the message I wanted to get across here, which is the U.S. may be the second largest producer of rare earths now, but they're still sending them to China to be processed. So there is that story. And then we have this Bloomberg News story via mining.com. China tightens grip on copper, key to world's energy transition. China is in the midst of a breakneck expansion of its copper industry that's reshaping global flows of the essential metal for the world's energy transition. The Asian nation's grip on the supply of other green metals like lithium, cobalt, and nickel 
used in electric vehicle batteries has already prompted worried Western governments to encourage separate supply chains. Meanwhile, China's production of refined copper and its share of world output is heading for a record this year after a burst in construction of new smelters. The rapid ramp-up in capacity brings a fresh dynamic to a market that for 20 years had been driven in large part by how much buyers in China are willing to pay. The country will still import growing amounts of copper, but more as ore rather than refined metal. So a similar story here, except with copper. Let's just scroll down a bit here. We have a quote from Craig Lang, principal analyst at researcher CRU Group. Quote, like all countries, China sees a strategic need for copper, particularly now with the growth in green energy applications. And China, like other countries, wants to ensure self-sufficiency. And this is where it says China will account for about 45% of global refined copper output this year, according to CRU. And it sounds like they're building more smelter capacity. The smelter buildup will be a key talking point for hundreds of copper industry executives descending this week on China's commodity hub of Shanghai for Asia Copper Week. Miners and smelters will negotiate key annual or supply contracts, and attendees will take the latest temperature of Chinese demand. Despite the financial toll of the pandemic and China's property crisis, the nation's metals consumption has been relatively strong in 2023. That has probably helped copper stave off an even deeper market slump, with prices only slightly lower than this time last year. And scrolling down a bit, the expansion of smelting capacity echoes the history of China's other metals industries. Until 2006, the country was a net importer of steel, for example. But a wave of new capacity eventually led to a flood of exports, hurting steelmakers and fueling global trade tensions in the pre-Trump era. China's copper smelting capacity will increase by another 45% by 2027, accounting for 61% of expected new plants around the world in that period, according to Carlos Rizopatron, Director of Economics at the International Copper Study Group. As I began this episode, if you want to control the world without starting a war, how would you do it? China may not have the metal, but if you control the refinement of the metal, it's almost as good as controlling the metal. And then scrolling down a bit further, quote, global copper concentrate supply will be loose in the first half before switching to a deficit in the second, end quote, said my steel analyst Meng Wenwen, who also expects a decline in fees. At the same time, the increase in smelting is making China less dependent on imported copper metal, leading to expectations of an oversupply of the refined form that sets the price of the London Metal Exchange, the world's benchmark. So, Again, it seems like we have this playbook that we've seen before with rare earths. Dominate the market, then flood the market, reduce the fees, possibly with government subsidies, and completely dominate the market. I mean, we've seen it over and over again, haven't we? And then they have more leverage over the miners. This is causing a headache for China's traditional suppliers like Chile and has forced the world's biggest copper producer, Cadelco, to slash the annual premium it charges to Chinese buyers. And finally, to be sure, China isn't the only nation building new smelters. India, Indonesia, and Africa's copper belt are also adding capacity, and China is mulling caps on smelter expansions for environmental reasons, although restrictions are unlikely to be imminent. So fascinating uh, developments there. Continuing on... Exxon to start lithium production for EVs in the U.S. by 2027. This is Reuters via mining.com. And this brings up a whole other interesting issue, which is Robert Friedland brought it up and also Simon Michaud in our feature content later in the program, which is this idea that, you know, for a real green energy transition, we should be focusing on minerals that are easy to acquire. Like Robert Friedland was talking about metals like iron ore rather than nickel, you know, and lithium. It's one of these minerals that are in shorter supply. And they're both making the point, we should be focusing on minerals that are basically easier to extract that are kind of everywhere, which makes a lot of sense, maybe easier said than done. Let's look at the story here. ExxonMobil said on Monday it plans to start producing lithium from subsurface wells by 2027 to provide supplies of the key metal used in electric car batteries and advanced electronics. Oil majors are investing in the electrification sector as governments in the United States and Europe set programs to promote wider use of electric vehicles and reduce fossil fuel consumption. 
Exxon said it will start production from briny waters pumped out of the ground in an area in the state of Arkansas known to hold significant lithium deposits to help develop a domestic source of the metal. Quote, in the long term, lithium really is a global opportunity, end quote, said Dan Amon, president of Exxon's low carbon business unit. Quote, we are starting here because there is an urgent need to ramp up domestic production of these critical materials, end quote. So Exxon continues to pursue lithium. I mean, it probably makes sense for them at least to hedge their bets should lithium batteries actually end up being the solution. Continuing on, billionaire Andrew Forrest wants leaders to target zero carbon by 2035. Bloomberg News. Australia's richest person, Andrew Forrest, called for businesses and governments to commit to stop burning fossil fuels by 2035. Quote, we have all the technology. It is all there. And quote, Forrest, founder of iron ore giant Fortescue Metals and a clean energy advocate, said Wednesday at the Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Singapore. Quote, the resource we are short of is character of leaders, end quote. Well, let's see if we can see the solution here. According to Forrest, getting new industries like green hydrogen started requires assistance from the government, while business leaders must take risks. So he is saying that green hydrogen is the solution. Forrest previously said he wanted to produce 15 million tons globally of green hydrogen using renewable power by 2030. So we do hear about hydrogen. I mean, Jeffrey Christian has mentioned hydrogen, so that is not mentioned. I wish I could have asked that of Simon Michaud. Maybe next time we will get that opportunity with hydrogen. But it always feels like a little ways off, doesn't it? That whole technology, but who knows? Andrew Forrest probably has pretty good information on that. Continuing on, gold mining ETFs fail to keep pace with Benchmark Bullion Fund. This is Reuters via mining.com. And there is a whole story on how the gold shares are not keeping up with the price of gold. I mean, I think we could say the gold stocks have not confirmed what we were seeing in the gold price. And maybe that's why it's down, interestingly. And we have a quote from Imaru Casanova, portfolio manager for the gold and precious metals investment strategy at Van Eck. Quote, interest in gold just hasn't been carrying over into interest in the companies that actually produce it. It's puzzling we're scratching our heads. And Casanova also said, quote, investors seem very wary of stocks as a whole, and gold miners have been tracking that rather than what's happening in gold itself. Interesting. I guess she's talking about commodity stocks in particular, because the NASDAQ doesn't look too bad right now, does it? And finally, just a couple of headlines here. Uh, Caliber Mining and Marathon Gold combined to create future 500,000 ounce per year producer. Now, don't forget, Caliber Mining was one of Cam Curry's favorites. I think it was the only company he really mentioned as far as like mid-tier companies. And so they have combined with Marathon Gold. Very interestingly, I'd be curious to hear what Cam Curry has to say about that. And also a headline here, Palladium price drops below $1,000 as demand from key car sector wanes. Bloomberg News via mining.com. And electric vehicles are seen as the culprit here. Just to editorialize here, I mean, I think cars are just too expensive. And I think consumers are increasingly strapped for cash and they're just not going to drop forty or fifty or sixty thousand dollars for a vehicle right now. Right? And so I guess palladium demand is coming down, but it is already quite low. And interestingly, there were a few, I think both Jeffrey Christian and Gareth Soloway were quite bullish at I think around eleven hundred dollars. So that is interesting. So it broke that support. Just a final note here in the story. It has slid about 10% this week with losses accelerating after prices fell below support at $1,100, sparking more sales by algorithmic traders. And again, Cam Curry was mentioning algorithmic traders as well. So all the pieces of the puzzle, I kind of feel are starting to come together here in all of these disparate stories here. And finally, uh, zinc prices jump on supply worries, Russian project fire report. So zinc has also shown itself to be particularly strong, I would say, relative to the other metals in the last few weeks here. And finally, last story here, Diamond World takes radical steps to stop a pricing plunge, also Bloomberg News via mining.com. So diamond sales are down. What was interesting about this story, it didn't see anything on synthetic diamonds but I did a search on it and I saw in the FT, they had a story in August about how synthetic diamonds, which apparently 
are two thirds the price of, you know, I guess you'd call them organic diamonds, but atomically the same. They went from about 3% of the market to 16% of the market. So now diamond producers are now being forced to constrain supply. So sales are going down just because if they put the same amount of supply, the price will go down. They're losing leverage in the whole system as it was basically formed. To me, there is something very structural, secular changes in the diamond market happening. So just to flag that, we will continue to follow that. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. metal prices. Let's just look at the bond market for a little bit of context here. The U.S. 10-year bond is trading at 4.556%. So let's call it 4.56%. That is down 0.06% from last week. So edging a little lower there. Not a ton of movement here. The U.K. 10-year gilt is down 0.001% at 4.3%. And the Italy 10-year bond is at 4.535%. Let's call it 4.54. And so that is down 0.16%. So bonds edging lower in the last week and turning to precious metals, gold is trading at $1,949 even. That is $21 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $22.41 per ounce. That is 23 cents lower than last week. Platinum is at $864.96 per ounce. That is $43 lower than last week. So getting quite low on platinum and palladium drops to $979.66 per ounce. That is $121 lower. So we saw that headline with palladium breaking support there. So quite a bloodbath, frankly, in platinum and palladium, especially palladium. I mean, what's interesting is like it's been a while since platinum and palladium have been the same price, but we're getting pretty close. We're a little over $100 away, maybe $115 away here. That is quite something. I mean, I used to remember when platinum was far more expensive than palladium. So super interesting there. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.66 per pound. That is down $0.04. Cents from last week, iron ore is at $128.34 per metric ton. That is $2 higher than last week. Aluminum is lower at $1.01 per pound. That is $0.03 cents lower than last week. Lead is unchanged at $0.99 cents per pound. Nickel at $7.72 per pound. That is $0.44 cents lower than last week. So really starting to approach pre-Ukraine war levels on nickel. And who could forget the big nickel crisis at the LME? So this is a big deal. Again, nickel, when the Ukraine war broke out, went up to $21.87. So we are almost at a third. And as Robert Friedland says, the nickel doesn't exist as far as all the plans that are there for the battery metals and you know building all these batteries for all these cars. So as I opened last episode with, you know, why aren't we buying this? If we can get a pound of nickel for $7.72, you know, US dollars, why don't we just buy it? I, I hope we're stockpiling it. I did a search on ChatGPT, and interestingly, the stockpiles of the Defense Department are not public. So hopefully they're being stockpiled uh, by the US. We know China does with a lot of these metals. So very interesting there. Tin, on the other hand, is up $0.11 cents at $11.16 per pound. Cobalt is still unchanged at $15.16 per pound. Lithium, another head turner here at $20.37 per kilogram. That is $1.98 lower, almost 10% lower on lithium, which was already, you know, falling through the floor here. Again, when we started tracking lithium, maybe, I don't know, six months ago, it was at $51.54 per kilogram. It is now at $20.37. So pretty interesting there. Uranium is 
almost unchanged. It is slightly lower at $73.65 per pound. That is 35 cents lower than last week. And zinc is unchanged at $1.16 per pound. So similar to last week, we're sort of seeing every market kind of have its own feel, shall we say. You know, zinc had that fire, so it's at $1.16. You know, palladium breaking support there. So really looked like a technical issue in the charts is what happened with palladium. It broke support and then it just crashed through the floor. So quite interesting there. Precious metals dropping and industrial metals generally edging lower with big attention on nickel here at $7.72 per pound. And also tin countering the trend, edging a little higher here. So that is also interesting. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Simon Michaud for the very first time to the Northern Miner podcast. He is Associate Professor at the Geological Survey of Finland and a prominent voice on the internet. So I'm thrilled to have him on. And it is a fascinating opinion and very well thought out view on the green metals transition, what the issues are and where to go from here. A lot of interesting solutions. I hope you enjoy it. And I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome Simon Michaud, Associate Professor of the Geology Survey of Finland, to the show for the very first time. Simon, thank you for coming on. It's nice to meet you, mate. Well, it's great to have you. I've seen some of your work online. For those that don't know much about what you're up to, uh, could you describe what you're doing at the Geology Survey of Finland? Okay, so a brief summary of how I got here. Basic training of a Bachelor of Applied Science, Physics and Geology, then a bit of mining engineering and open pit optimization. Then I did a PhD in blasting and mining engineering in Australia. I was in the Australian mining industry for 18 years in research. I went to the private sector to support feasibility studies for a short period of time. Then I came to Europe, into Belgium to learn industrial recycling and the circular economy. I left Belgium and what I saw in Belgium really did motivate the current work. And I came to the Geological Survey of Finland to join the the work being done on mineral intelligence. And since then, I have been promoted to the current position where I'm in the circular economy solutions of GTK. All right, so the work I'm doing, when I left Australia and came to Europe, I I was really sort of surprised to find a distinct lack of hard numbers behind any planning. There was no comprehensive feasibility plan for the macro scale transformation and industrial reform to phase out fossil fuels. There was a lot of talk and there was a lot of work done in a small scale, but no one had actually stitched it all together to the point where it was actually able to be done. Coming from the mining industry too, like certain things that what I thought were were commonplace for me weren't even part of the lexicon of the people I was seeing in Europe. Uh, They don't do mining in Europe, for example, they don't extract raw materials. What we do is we buy things from the market and they're manufactured either in Southeast Asia in particular, but either outside of Europe or any manufacturing done in Europe tends to be done on components made in Southeast Asia. And there was a complete unawareness of all of this. There was this just, just this belief, this, this almost magical thinking and arm waving that was a little bit distressing to watch. I thought about it for a couple of years and I said, I'm seeing a fairly serious pattern here. Like promises were being made on behalf of mining, recycling, smelting and refining, but also manufacture that were never going to come to pass. They just weren't practical. Never in a million years are we going to make a billion electric vehicles in 20 years. That's basically the prospect of what we're looking at. Anyway, so I thought about it for a couple of years and I worked out a way to communicate what I was seeing in a way that it couldn't be ignored. And what I found was each discipline had its own professional language, its own data the form of data, like how how do we communicate with each other? And so I worked out a way of communicating this idea in ways that couldn't be ignored. And what I came up with, I had to get it to the point where I could say the number of solar panels that will be needed, the number of wind turbines that will be needed, the number of batteries and of what kind. And when we get to that point, we can then compare that, well, this is what's needed. 
what about our ability to deliver that? And so then I'm looking at mining production, recycling. I looked at very, very briefly, but I decided this was a mining story. And so I looked at production, then I looked at reserves, then I looked at resources. And the conclusion I came to was the green transition in its current form was not feasible. We're just not even remotely feasible. But these problems need to be resolved. We can't go back to fossil fuels, right? So we've got to move on to something else. So what is that something else? And that's now my current work. That is fascinating. So interestingly, you're saying, just to pick up on your last sentence there, we can't go back to fossil fuels because a lot of the people that we hear showing skepticism, which frankly I share, uh, I think anybody that's like kind of starts to do a rudimentary computation here, for me, it's actually based on the stories. Uh, you hear the miners saying there's not going to be enough metals, and then you see like <laughs> the amount of electric vehicles that they want to build, and then you hear Robert Friedland saying there's just not enough nickel out there. Like it doesn't exist, as he says. Interestingly, though, a lot of the a secondary part of that statement will go to, so therefore we're going to be using oil for the next 50 years. But you don't say that. Is that correct? Sort of. Right. So because we are absolutely dependent on fossil fuel systems, but the vast, vast majority of our system does need oil, gas and coal, we will continue to use that for quite some time. But all three of those fossil fuels, oil, gas and coal, are becoming unreliable for one reason or another. Now, the first is oil. We're a petroleum-driven society. There's a very strong correlation between oil use and global GDP uh, in total liquids. Mm -hmm. And so Williams says we are indeed a petroleum-driven society, and that's not going to change anytime soon, willingly. The thing of the word is willingly. So in 2018, we saw a localised peak oil production, November 2018. So that's peak oil. It's no longer... A theory, it's an observation. And then we had COVID 12 months later, which knocked it down further. And now we're actually on the uh, process of coming back. But when you actually unpack that, total liquids, we're having things like gasoline is being made from biofuels and natural gas liquids. So it's actually part of the gas industry is now being forced to supply the oil industry in a, in a prop-up sort of fashion. Meanwhile, what we call crude oil has indeed to continued to decline since November 2018. So we may well have seen peak oil. Now, what that means is we have a vast amount of oil left, but our ability to bring products to the market cheaply in the quantities that we demand is now going to be a problem. Right, so oil in its own right is becoming unreliable. And I think that the pressure point is going to be diesel. There's going to be diesel shortages, not enough to go around. Then it comes to gas. Now, we've got plenty of gas, so there's, there's not a question of peak production. We might have peaked, uh, discovered peak discovery of reserves. But what has happened with gas, because it is linked with oil, it has become geopolitically weaponized, aka what's happening with the monkey business in Ukraine and, and where do we get our gas from. So it's become unreliable to the point where large industrial groups are leaving Europe and going to the United States, who claim they will never weaponize their gas supply. And then there is coal. We've got lots of coal, but all the good stuff's been mined out. Now, we're not going to run out of coal anytime soon, but we are completely dependent on coal for our manufacture. And that's mostly done in China. And so the supply of coal is intimately linked with our relationship with China. And it's going to become very, very complicated. So all of this was always or relatively small problems 10 years ago, but now they're front and center. So fossil fuels from this point on, in one reason or another, are going to become difficult to work with, and we're going to want an alternative system. And as that time goes on, it will become more and more needed to do so. The flashpoint always was and is oil, the oil industry. So in addition to all the conventional discussions around you know, oil and fossil fuels, we've now got as a resource, as an energy system resource, it's not going to be able to deliver what we need, especially cheaply. Like the oil that we've got left is there, but it's going to be expensive to get hold of. And our economics depend upon cheap, abundant energy. That's fast. And we can get it as much as we want. That's not going to happen anymore. Right. So so fossil fuels are now showing warning signs that we should you know, think about moving on. And the green transition also 
is not going to work the way we hoped, especially if uh, we have to do a lot of mining and we're not allowed to use fossil fuels anymore. No one, for example, has shown me a sensible way to do any mining with wind turbines and solar panels as the power source. We're just not ready for that. I kind of feel like this is the elephant in the room that is not discussed, which is all the energy it takes to mine these metals. Like, from your understanding, I mean, is that factored in? Like, I imagine they must. It seems like common sense. You know, you hear this in the oil business, too, that the amount of energy or oil it takes to get a barrel of oil, that ratio is, you know, getting where you need more and more oil or energy to extract that oil. So, again, what's your understanding of how the amount of energy that is required to mine these metals is understood out there? Well, it's not really understood. It's seen as a um, energy is just seen as a cost. Mining happens to a formula, a very basic formula. Now, most electricity, these tend to be in remote mine sites. And the larger, especially copper mines, we tend to be using a lot of electricity to crush and grind things down. So what we generally do is a gas pipeline out in the middle of nowhere to supply an electric power plant, which then supplies the mine site. And so a lot of the equipment on the mine site is electric coming off that power station, which is powered by gas. So that's a cost. Then we've got the truck and shovel fleet that actually does, you know, the first stage of excavation and moves a lot of the, you know, waste rock around. That's actually powered uh, with diesel and that's seen as a cost. Then there's access to potable water to do the processing, especially in fine grinding. That is a cost. So everything's seen as a cost. So when we actually say, well, what do we do without fossil fuels? The only thing I've seen so far is where they've actually tried to develop a, a truck that runs on EV batteries. And the short-term performance, they say, so, well, the EV battery truck can actually run faster than the petroleum truck. But hang on, how long does it last for? See, so see, a petroleum, a diesel-fueled dump truck can actually run for a whole shift, which is you know, many, many hours. Whereas an EV truck might have to recharge after half an hour. And how long does it take to recharge? Like, those metrics are not available. So what I'm saying is mining has not actually got its arms around this. And because they're a, um, a corporate business, they're a business. It's, it's all about money and economics. They're just waiting till someone else actually sorts this out. And in the meantime, they're making as much money as they can. So mining is actually driven by corporations. And corporations, especially in the mining industry, don't think in terms of research and development. And I used to be in mining research and development. It's very conservative. They don't like radical ideas. They want ideas that are practical or are considered doable, which has this way of limiting what can and cannot be done. I mean, one thing, just to circle back to the energy side of things then, before we go on to what will work, one of the things I find really interesting about your take on energy in general is that the imperative is not actually climate change that the thing that's driving this it's actually supply like in a sense like whatever you're thinking on climate change may be or however urgent yeah. you think the issue is you're saying in a sense that's a secondary issue uh, the issue is actually supply that's driving this it depends who you talk to some people feel that the climate emergency is the emergency thing that needs to be dealt with I personally think that in the climate change, like I'm an environmentalist, I consider myself to be so, but I think we're actually focusing on the wrong thing. We've got an ecological disaster in front of us where we have species die off, ocean acidification, land degradation. That's the sort of things that we need to be working on. Whereas everyone seems to be focusing on a trace element in the air. And now that we've got like a massive volcano about to go off, that's going to dump a whole lot more carbon in the air. Does that mean we're tipped over the edge? What I'm getting at is... These things may, may well be valid, but if we are to do some useful work in the next 20, 30 years, what would that actually be? So what would work? I mean, you've done some right. thinking and some writing on this. I mean, fascinatingly. Uh, go ahead. So there is no magic bullet, in my opinion. And so to me, it's what, what we're looking at is a system of solutions that actually are a new paradigm. We're in a society at the moment that is based on whim and everything's easy for us. Energy's easy. Money's easy. Stuff is easy. You know, uh, 99% of all things manufactured are thrown away six months after they were manufactured. Right? It, it's huge. And so we're a throwaway culture that's based on consumption because everything that's actually produced is sold for money. And it works better if everyone buys the same product many, many times instead of just once. So built into this idea of growth and consumption, that's got to go. Then we've got to look at, well, we need a new relationship with energy and materials. 
where we actually sort of contract in size. And so energy is the master resource. Now, for a start, what I've sort of shown is, is electric vehicles aren't going to work with lithium-ion batteries. What if we made batteries out of something else, like fluoride, you know, the fluoride in your toothpaste, zinc, you know, or sodium? You know, you know, th these things don't face resource constrictions. The problem is we are out of time and we won't have the ability to manufacture enough in the same time. Then we've got to generate electricity differently. What my work has shown that wind and solar are not going to be viable for us for a number of reasons versus the resource constraints. But then there is the problem of they're highly variable and they need a buffer. And that buffer traditionally is the fossil fuels industry. Take that buffer away and make wind and solar the primary energy systems and they're no longer viable because they're too large. The buffers required are so large, we don't have the ability to store such a large amount of power for so long to be useful. Right, wind and solar won't do it. And so I've actually found two energy sources that might change the dial. And that one is deep drilling geothermal. If we can actually sort of get a, get our breakthrough that's been promised on how do we actually drill deep quickly and fast and cheaply, uh, holes 10 kilometres deep, then geothermal might be able to be useful. But even if we did do that, we've got to get the heat up to the surface to be useful fast enough. Uh, so, it's, so it's, And it's not easy. So that needs surgery. The solution that is ready to go is liquid fuel fission. Now, most every energy system I've looked at has a bottleneck, all of them. The ones we've got now and the ones we're looking at forwards. But one sector has to evolve if we're going to get through this. And the most likely to be useful is an evolution of the nuclear industry. The current nuclear industry cannot expand fast enough to be useful and is so complex and has safety concerns and problems that makes it difficult to be the primary energy solution. So an evolution could be that instead of using solid fuel fission, we look at liquid fuel. And that liquid fuel could be anything. It could be uranium, it could be thorium, it could be all sorts of metals could be used. But I like thorium because thorium, for starters, is abundant, and most nation states have got a source of thorium in some form. And the front end of the nuclear fuel cycle for a liquid fuel thorium system can be done at any rare earth mine site where you make a thorium fluoride beryllium salt. And that salt is not dangerous in the same way that yellow cake is dangerous. It's a little bit above background radiation, but only a little, not enough for its own classification. And the interesting thing about liquid fuel systems is they use most of their fuel, like 96, 97% of the fuel gets consumed. Whereas in the existing solid fuel systems, only about three or four percent is consumed and the rest cannot be used and it's very radioactive. So we've got a massively different footprint of, uh, let's say, liquid fuel thorium, liquid, liquid fuel fission thorium compared to the conventional uranium fission system to hit the same targets. What's also interesting is the thorium system doesn't need water to be cooled down. So you don't need these massive cooling towers. And so it's appropriate in deserts now. So if we do that, now that opens the door where we can actually make smaller units, smaller modular units, and make a, a reactor that could fit, say, a shipping container, right? If you did that, we could decentralize the power grid and remove the need for these long power cables that go all over the landscape. You could have a thorium reactor in a shipping container, or a thorium burner, I like to call them, under, in a shipping container under every major industrial system. And so we can decentralize the whole grid. And we can actually then control the front end and the back end of that fuel system ourselves instead of needing specialist help. The isotopes that come out of these things are actually much different to the uranium systems and they're much easier to handle. It sounds like a very, very resilient system as well, if it's basically decentralized. I guess my question then, as we're starting to wrap up here, is... What happened to geothermal? I mean, I heard a lot of noise about it 10 years ago. And in a sense, why is there no focus on thorium? I remember hearing an interview, I think, 10 years ago about the virtues of thorium. And back then, the reason given as to why it was not kind of more prominently in the discussion was ultimately it was a political issue. I mean, how do you see, like, I have a couple of questions. What happened to geothermal? What's going on with thorium? Is there any movement? So... Let's do geothermal. Now, when you've got a geothermal plant, you've got to drill the hole to start with. Then you've got to have the hole sealed because you know, there's all sorts of joints and bolts up and down the, the hole, which will lose steam pressure, will go out those joints. So you've got to seal it up. 
then you've got to get the heat to the surface in a time where it's still hot enough to generate electricity, right? You need to be able to make steam to turn a turbine. So what happened with geothermal was the geological challenges of doing that and the ability to drill holes deeply and quickly, because we now need to go down several kilometres to be useful. The logistical challenges on it were just that we're hoping for a breakthrough, but the breakthrough has yet to actually come. Okay, so that's what I believe has happened with geothermal, and we're still sort of waiting on that breakthrough. Hmm. What happened with thorium was actually very interesting. So I've actually got this report from the Oak Ridge Nuclear Laboratory from 1972. There's a status report of research done after several decades, and basically it says this stuff works. They did a pilot system of 7.4 megawatts. It ran for 6,000 hours without any sort of interruption of any kind. And they made the case that they now wanted to make a large system, a full-scale power plant. And so the system they looked at was liquid fuel, but they were find that it, thorium was used, but also uranium salts were uh, investigated. And it was actually also possible to process some parts of the nuclear waste stockpile in this fashion. So it was very interesting. Where thorium has actually gotten since then is everyone's focused on solid fuel thorium, which is actually not practical. There are some logistical steps that make it very tricky. The decisions that were made in 72 were very simple. The Cold War was in progress. There were no energy constraints. There were no resource constraints. And the military, the US military in particular, were calling the shots. They made the judgment call on two fronts that they wanted a civilian uranium system, a nuclear power generation grid, that the associated industry would be very good at actually disguising the manufacture of nuclear weapons. If they went thorium, or thorium fuel, sorry, liquid fuel, that couldn't happen. So the military wanted the uranium for that reason. And then they pointed out much more money could be made and there'd be much many, many, many more jobs associated with a uranium system. So I think it was Richard Nixon who actually made that judgment call and says, right, I want jobs for California. We will now go uranium. And since then, thorium has just sort of seen, ah, no, we're not interested. And everyone seems to have forgotten about the liquid fuel systems. But there is actually no neutronics simulations of you know what the reactor would actually do that's actually in the public space of what a liquid fuel fission system using thorium salt as the fuel would actually do. So they'd actually know if it would work or not. Now, since then, several private groups have done it, and they're now in the process of rolling out a business to actually make thorium burner reactors. That's what's yep. happened. That is fascinating. So ultimately, it sounds like a bit of a, you know, defense or war decision ultimately was the reason. And, money. And, and money, right? And as you mentioned, I, that's what I remember actually from that interview. Amazingly, 10 years ago, I remember, yeah, it had to do with jobs. It was like a political decision in California. Yeah. <laughs> this is what I remember, too. So I think. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so. As we wrap up then, what do you think needs to happen here? Like, I mean, obviously you think uh, thorium and, you know, geothermal needs to be investigated further to see if we can get a breakthrough there. That sounds like kind of a mid to long term thing. Uh, like, what are you trying to do now in order to, like, you know, if you're right, I mean, what should be done? Like, I mean, obviously, do you talk to politicians? Like, how do we move forward from here? I do indeed talk to politicians, and I've been pleasantly surprised that they're not rejecting these challenges. They're not in denial. They just don't know what to do. They're trying to get their arms around what to do with this and how can they actually sort of come up with any solutions that would be acceptable to the people around them. That's their challenge. What has to happen is two. What, first of all, two things. First of all, we all have to understand the nature of the challenge in front of us, and we still don't. That's been the purpose of my work for the last five years. Me and so many other people have been sort of getting the story out there. This is what we've got to do, and this is how we've got to do it. Okay, but the second thing that's got to happen, right, is research and innovation has to be commercialized. There are so many unconventional ideas out there that have been rejected, you know, for ideological reasons. They work quite well. They don't have to you know, be, be rejected. So, in fact, my future plans is to actually sort of work with an innovation hub to get every unorthodox idea I can lay my hands on and put them all in one place so they can actually cross-fertilize and in a holistic systems fashion, develop a new energy paradigm and a new materials resource paradigm. That has to happen in as many places as possible, not just one place. 
Now, because the urgency involves here, we need our brain trust working on the right problems in as many places as possible, and they need to be talking to each other. But this is not a one solution. This is a many solution. Indeed, it seems like at the core, it seems like maybe it's an education issue, you know, at the core, right? Because once there's that understanding that you're discussing, then hopefully we can start to make moves in this direction. But it seems like a titanic task. It's an education thing, but followed by people have got to do it. A lot of these ideas have been around for a while, but existing systems and structures have actually not allowed new and innovative ideas to come out. So we've got to go and do it. As I like to say, enough talky-talky, now we need the wickety-whack. Well, a beautiful note to end on, and we're more than happy here at the Northern Miner Podcast to help you get your message out and just some different ideas that may actually work would sound like a very important thing to do. So Simon Michaud, Associate Professor at Geological Survey of Finland, thank you for joining us here on the Northern Miner Podcast and sharing your insights. You're welcome and watch this space. Once again, a big thank you to Simon Michaud, Associate Professor at the Geological Survey of Finland, for joining us on the Northern Miner Podcast. We look forward to doing that again. For those that know someone in the mining industry under the age of 40 that they think should be nominated, there is the nominations for the 2024 Peter Monk and Ira Thomas Awards. Simply go to youngminingprofessionals.com slash awards and you can put in your nominee. They need to be under the age of 40 and the deadline is December 31st, 2023. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.